Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Melissa Rivers, and welcome to Group Text. Stay tuned for a new episode. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Group Text. Really great podcast today. Sabrina and I are super excited because we are indulging in our girl power. We have with us best-selling author and the co-host of the podcast, Here to Slay, Roxanne Gay. Welcome. Hello. It's great to be here. Right off the bat, when I was reading everything about you, your resume is ridiculously long. But I guess the first question right off the bat is, how did you become a leading voice uh, as a sort of social commentator on feminism, where did that begin? Um, I think it began with an essay I wrote in 2009 or 2010 called um, The Careless Language of Sexual Violence. I was writing in response to a New York Times article about uh, a 10 or 11 year old girl who was gang raped in Cleveland, Texas. And the Times decided to write about how the town was suffering and the basketball team, like there were like 28 men involved. It was truly one of the most horrific things I've ever read about. And they were worried because so many of the guys were on the basketball team that they were maybe going to have to cut the season short. Oh no, not that. And they were like, why was she out at like late at night? And I'm just like, she's 10 years old. And so it was, all of it was so outrageous that I wrote this essay in a fury in a couple of hours. And it wasn't my first essay, but it was certainly the first essay of mine that was ever read with uh, such a significant audience. And so, you know, it just snowballed from there. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Well, how did you go from being a creative writing professor to an activist? Well, I do both. (laughs) Uh, You know, I think that they're not so different, even though I don't really take my activism in the classroom. That's not my job. My job is to teach my students how to write and how to think critically, uh, not what to think. And so um, I just recognize that when I am not in the ivory tower, I am a black woman uh, living in a world that is definitely hostile to who I am. And that's important to think about. You can't forget that just because you have privilege, uh, everything is okay, because that's just not the case. And the onus is on those of us with a lot of privilege to do something useful with it. First of all, just to catch people up, you actually were teaching in the master's program at Purdue at mm-hmm. the time that you published your first two books, one of which was a novel mm-hmm. and one was Bad Feminist. Mm-hmm. So that's a lot all at once. Yes. To, you know, because with, you know, especially in a master's program, you are constantly having to read and edit and do all this. How did you split your time? How did you not let one bleed into the other? Um, I, I don't have children, which 
makes but a do you lot have, possible. Do, do you have pets? No. Oh my God, you don't even have fur babies? No, well, now I do because my wife has two cats. And so there are cats. Um, you say so happily. <laughs> <laughs> well, they are. I like one, one of the cats is great. We like one of the cats. One of the cats is people. And so it's a little hard. But yeah, I had no fur babies. Um, I had, I was in a long distance relationship. And so I had a lot of free time. And I had actually written those two books while I was teaching at my previous institution. Uh, it just coincided that the release came when I started at Purdue. But I just always made it work. And I've always taken myself seriously as a writer, which means that I've always blocked out time for writing and so it means a lot of late nights because i'm an insomniac and i just decided to do something useful with them well you did something more than useful bad feminist was dubbed a manual on how to be human thank you what what does that mean we may need to re-release it today yeah (laughs) yeah well yeah that and how to be a human without being an asshole um but how how did you start with that how, how why is it called a manual on how to be human and that was from well, time time magazine yeah you know i think people project mm-hmm. a lot of things onto the book and d- decide what it is for them i certainly was just writing an essay collection because if you try to have some sort of lofty ideal of what you want people to take away from your book they're going to know and they're going to resent it and so i just wrote the book i wanted to write and i was fortunate enough i think my advance was so little that my publisher was like, eh, whatever's going on in there, it's going to be fine. And I had a really good editor. I had a great editor. And I just wanted people to think and to all recognize that feminism does not mean that you can't live your life and that you can't make the choices that you want to make for yourself. It just means that you have to think about accountability and the consequences of those choices. What I find really interesting is you didn't necessarily set out to be a feminist. And that reminds me so much of my mother, who was lauded, especially after she passed, as being this great feminist hero. She never labeled herself as a feminist. She was almost an accidental feminist. Mm-hmm. Totally. And and you, I, I feel like you kind of fell into that same lane of you didn't set out to be this very strong voice of feminism. It just kind of happened. It did. Uh, It wasn't my plan. You know, when I named the collection, it was originally going to be called What We Hunger For. And my publisher was like, oh, no, too many words. And so (laughs) I decided to go with Bad Feminist uh, because it was catchier. And they were right. This is a more provocative title. Uh, It certainly I did not think was going to become the the label that followed me for the rest of my career. But I'm also fine with that because I am a feminist and, and my feminism informs everything I do. So it's fine. But I also just encourage people to recognize that there is no one singular voice for feminism and there are lots of ways to be a feminist. What do you think some of those are? I mean, we're in the middle of this whole, as we like to say, can we talk, can we listen mm-hmm. sort of social construct right now? What, how, how are people able to be feminists without feeling like they have to scream in people's faces? Because I think that's sort of the, the prototypical idea of what a feminist is. Yes, I think that is a caricature that is not at all grounded in reality. And quite frankly, when you look at the state of women throughout the world, uh, there's a lot to scream about. And so it's not an unreasonable way of being. But I think that when you make choices 
not only for yourself, but for the women in your community, the women in your family, um, the women you don't know, uh, that help them be as secure and safe as possible. I think when you make those kinds of choices, you're doing something very feminist. It doesn't mean like, oh, I got a promotion and I'm a boss, I'm a girl boss. Like that's not feminism. You can call it feminism, but like that, that would be a very singular way of doing it. Um, I think that you just have to make good choices. You have to make sure that you are supporting candidates who have women's best interests at heart. Uh, you cannot be pro-life and be a feminist. Now, you might think you are, but when you decide that you can prescribe choices for a woman's body, then you are moving well out of the feminist zone. And so it's just actions and accountability and recognizing that sometimes you are going to make choices that are unfeminist. And that's okay. The world is not going to come to an end. One of the things you've talked about quite a bit is pay disparity. Yes. Did that come from a personal place or did you just sort of take a 30,000 foot view and say, you know, Houston, we have a problem? Uh, it's both. I, I, women are paid less than men. And depending on your race or ethnicity, uh, the pay gets even lower for women with Native American women making the least on the dollar compared to white men, white heterosexual men. So you, would not, you recognize that that pay disparity exists for equal work it's incredibly frustrating because women are awesome and very capable. And so we should be paid the same as men. And we should be thinking about that and thinking about why people believe that women should be paid less than men. And, you know, when I look at what my peers are making um, in the professoriate, I, I'm, I was, the reason I actually left Purdue was because I was drastically underpaid, you know, by like $50,000, not a little bit, but- No, that's lot. extremely significant. But yeah. that's generally how it is for women, though. Yes, it Let's is. Let's be honest. And Let's be honest. Yeah, it is. And it's incredibly frustrating to know that, like, I write circles around the men and have a much higher profile, and I'm making $79,000 a year. Like, what are you talking about? And, and there's $79,000 is a lot of money, to be clear. But yes. it certainly was not what someone in my field at my level should have been making. And it's, it's just so frustrating to recognize that there is this glass wall as for black women and for women in general, but I can speak specifically to that of black women. And if it's happening at this level, you know it's happening at every level. And so what's happening to the women who are making $28,000 a year or $35,000 a year and who are trying to raise an entire family on that paycheck? Um, I, that's why I had to take the broader view and recognize if my privileged ass is feeling funky about my pay, what are people who are barely making it doing? It's really frustrating and it's a problem. And I cannot believe that our federal leaders cannot <laughs> institute an equal pay amendment of some kind. It's do you ridiculous. Think, do you think part of it is women are not comfortable advocating for themselves? Um, that's a good question. I, and, and I think there's something there for sure. Women do advocate for themselves differently, but when women advocate the way that men do, they're told that they're being too aggressive and that they're getting out of line. And so I think women have learned over the years that that attitude is not necessarily going to get you anywhere. Yeah, because uh, you're, you're faced with labels constantly. Right. You're a bitch. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you're, you're, you know, you're a, a, an angry black woman. I get that pretty right. often because I speak up, but I don't really right. care. Seriously, uh, you don't yes. want to be, you don't want to be on the receiving end of, of, of pissing off Sabrina. <laughs> I, I can imagine. I think she's. Oh, formidable. I still, I still remember when FedEx lost a dress of mine right before the Academy Awards. And and my mother and I were like, "Whoa!" Because you do you remember that? You were running from phone to phone, and you were putting them on hold and yelling at anybody. I mean, literally, she had grown men under their desks. Roxanne, I'm a doer, just like you. <laughs> guess what they guess what they found my dress. <laughs> oh, that's awesome! <laughs> the magical powers come in handy. But yeah, I mean, and and with my mother, who was really a second mother to Sabrina as well. We were constantly told to speak. You know, it it really was not that either of us didn't have a genetic propensity to do so. Mm -hmm. But that goes back to the advocating. You know, I look at my son and it's very interesting. And I think so much of this, the more I think about it is generational. He as well, again, my son was raised in a household of very strong women. A village of women. Yes. And so I think he has a tremendous respect and just a healthy amount of fear of all of us. (laughs) Um, But I find that he's being raised in a world where they are not seeing a disparity so much between men and women and what's entitled to either. Mm, I think at a certain economic level, that might be true. But in the grand scheme of things, it looks like things are things are getting better, actually. Let me say that. Things are getting better. And I do think that Generation Z and whatever the generation after them is are knowing the most gender equality that we have seen in our lifetimes. Um, I'm 45. And so I think that this is as good as it's been. And I think it's because of years, decades, really, of feminists fighting for where we are. But... When you look at, for example, what Hillary Clinton faced when she was running for president, when you look at the two candidates that are left for this year, um, where the women who were incredibly qualified were never really in the race, even though they deserve to be, uh, you recognize that it might seem like things are better, and they are better, but we have not had the fundamental cultural shift that we need for women to be considered equal to men and to be treated with equity. Uh, we have a long way to go, and and that's what's so challenging. And the further down you go on the economic ladder, the more those disparities in gender become apparent. And it's just you know important to remember that while also taking a time to appreciate what has been achieved, and that our sons and daughters are learning a different way of interacting and thinking about gender and thinking about what it means to live in their gender. How do we get the message through and start to shift the paradigm in the lower socioeconomic areas? Well, I wouldn't say that it's not that they don't understand the paradigm. I just think that they face the consequences of gender disparities in different ways. I was say, how do, I, yeah, ways. How, do, how do we how do we help start the conversation to change that? You know, I think it's just, we have to take a holistic approach. Like we have to recognize that misogyny shapes so much of what moves our culture. And we have to start to address that misogyny. 
whether it's equal pay or looking at the disproportionate burden of childcare that is placed on women. I, I think that childcare is one of the biggest issues of our time uh, because if you're working and your entire paycheck is going to childcare, like how are you supposed to survive? Uh, and so if we dealt with that issue and we culturally shifted to recognize that childcare is parents' work, not women's work, um, we would get a lot further. Uh, healthcare and the disparities in healthcare, black female mortality is so high right now. Uh, infant mortality and maternal mortality are incredibly high. Um, and that doesn't make sense. Um, a, a, a college-educated Black woman is, is, has a higher maternal mortality rate than a high school-educated white woman. Uh, so you can't even buy your way out of misogyny. And so we have to really recognize that it's everywhere and it's everything, and we have to start pushing back and creating real change legislatively, culturally, and economically. I think that that's key as a society, that we have to start to move together to make those changes. Mm -hmm. It can't just be our voices, it should be everyone's voice because you have a mother, you have a sister, you have a daughter, you know, that deserve this, you know, equality. And I think it's very, very important that we continue the dialogue. We still have a long way to go. We really well, I do. I was going to say, speaking of misogyny, that takes me right into something else I found really interesting. Sabrina and I were discussing, you decided to partner at one point with Marvel Comics. Yeah. Yes, I could. I could. What, what happened with Wakanda? What, 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 why are we not seeing it? What's going on? <sighs> you know. I love, I, I love, by the way, I love, we get into the entertainment world and there's a big, giant, deep sigh. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I, the entertainment world, I, I love it. I work in it, but it's such, the, like the, the, the obstacles that women face and that black women face are so ridiculous. And when you talk about it, you feel a little silly because it's like, oh, wow. Um, like I'm having this amazing life and I'm encountering an obstacle, but still that obstacle is there. Uh, so I loved writing World of Wakanda for Marvel. Marvel was great to work with. Um, I had a great editor, but, uh, and it sold well, but it did not sell the way they wanted it to sell. And so it ended after one season, for lack of a better word. And I think a lot of it is that the comics world is very insular and it's very misogynist. And I, they weren't ready for you. They weren't, but it's not even that they weren't ready. I, I don't know that comics like the typical comic geek was ever going to get into what i was throwing down which was a black lesbian love story um uh, set by with two um amazing kick-ass bodyguards uh so i don't know that they were ever going to jive but i also think that i think they would i would hope they would because I it was actually so a good comic I it was think a so really too. good comic people like badass people they want to see that narrative yeah and it was an action story you know and it was timed really well with the Black Panther film, but the comics industry is hard to navigate if you don't know it in terms of where, how do you buy a comics? Like when I got the job, I decided to go buy some comics and I went to a comic store and it was incredibly intimidating. And there is a steep learning curve. And I don't think that the comics industry does enough to educate people who aren't natural comics fans and who know how to navigate that world. 
And so until they do that, we're going to see a lot of creators of color who are not hitting the sales numbers they want because my audience would have come along with me if they knew where the hell to get the comics. Once the trade paperback came out, it was great and it, it continues to sell. So it's just, there are a lot of things going on there, but I would work with them again. I have worked with them again. Okay. Uh, it's just a constant, like uphill battle. Isn't it interesting though, you go back, you were saying that uh, the education about how the comic book world works. That's with everything in life. Even now, um, you know, as people are starting to try to make the shift with equality um, with minorities, it, there's still this thing of, well, I never experienced that. So I don't find that to be quite yeah. the, the truth or the reality mm -hmm. um, or really your narrative. Just going back to like what you were saying earlier uh, about, you know, just com complaining about the fact that you've, you've encountered an obstacle and it's not that big of a deal, but it is. You, you sh can't just walk away and not understand and recognize and see and acknowledge what the hell is going on. And so I think it's across the board. You, you have to be educated, whether it's the comic books or women in general or wh whatever the situation is. So I find that really, you know, interesting that there's a parallel across the board. It is. And people just need to be able to look beyond their realities. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think most people struggle to do that. They well, struggle to recognize that just because we have not experienced a certain form of bigotry doesn't mean it's not out there. Well, one of the things you talk about in your memoir, which was a, had a ton of impact, hunger, mm -hmm. is the idea of body image and body shaming. Was writing hunger cathartic for you? Yes. It wasn't the goal, of course. When I started to write the book, I just wanted to write a memoir of my body uh, because most books about fatness are about weight loss. And I've lost 300 pounds. Look at me. And... That's a great narrative, and I don't begrudge anyone that narrative, but that was not, at the time, my narrative. And so I wanted to write about what it means to live in a very, very fat body. Because also, when people talk about fatness, they think of, like, Lane Bryant fat. So it was very... Wow, that's a, that's a, that's a, a throwback name, yes, to, for, to, which dates all of us who know what that yeah. is. <laughs> Uh, which Lane Bryant's still in business, by the way. I was getting way. ready to say, Lane Bryant is still kicking. And yes, for those of you that don't know, Lane Bryant is was the first major retail chain for the larger woman. Mm -hmm. What's always fascinating to me is that um, when I hear women that are size 10 or size 12, that's plus size. Yeah, please. And I'm like, really? Well, don't you think that's changed? Well... The, in reality, it has absolutely changed where, you know, but it depends on where you are. Like in New York and L.A., no, it has not changed. <laughs> uh, I was going to say. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it has not changed at all. Um, my, my partner is very small, and sometimes we, um, when I'm, like, going with her to go clothes shopping at Saks or something, and I just sort of look around, I'm like, I did not know this world existed. Like, the world of the skinny girl clothing is wild. Blew my mind. Uh, so it, it still exists in the cities. And it, I mean, it, fat phobia exists everywhere, but it just depends. Uh, but it was I mean, interesting to see like people realize, oh, this is a thing. Yeah, it is. Oh, fat phobia in our office and in my house, it is so ingrained in us. It's an endless topic. Like this morning I had to put on, and I hate to use the term, my fat jeans. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, it's ruined my day. 
Mm -hmm. You know? Absolutely. And I think so many women, especially, but men also deal with body image, but so many women carry such damaging narratives about bodies and fatness and what our bodies should look like and what they should feel like. And we don't focus enough on, you know, do I feel strong? Do I feel healthy? Do I feel like I look good? Uh, and it's really hard to undo that programming, even as a feminist, even as someone who believes in fat positivity. It's something I struggle with. And I spend half the time talking to my therapist about, about body image. And I think I should be beyond this. I should be like so enlightened as to not care. But uh, that's not the world we live in. And so I think that it's important for people to be given the space to live in their bodies as peacefully as they can and to recognize that some days we're going to have bad days and think badly about ourselves. I think that's always something that women struggle with. And I just feel like because we're seen through a different lens, we have to, you know, live up to a a certain standard. You know, we're taught that as little girls, you know, (laughs) sit up straight, boobies out, be pretty, smile, all that good stuff. So you're, like you said, you're programmed. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And we have to actively resist that programming, you you know, and, and respect the choices that people make for their bodies or understand that, maybe it wasn't a choice. Maybe something happened there. Uh, And that was really what I hoped to get across with hunger, that everybody has a story and you don't know what kinds of trauma someone's carrying around or why they turn to food and why it's hard to turn away from food. Uh, And I'm just glad that the book is out in the world. I don't know how many people will ever read it, but I know that there are women out there who do read the book regardless of the body that they're in and they feel seen and that for me is incredibly gratifying. Now I have a question for you. Do you find that women are harsher toward other women? Uh, No, I do not. Uh, And I I get this a lot because there's this really, you know, the mean girl narrative and I have a woman boss and she's a tyrant. Like, yeah, she's a tyrant because she had a male boss at one point who was a tyrant to her (laughs) and she's replicating learned behaviors. And so do I think that there is this thing that exists among women, absolutely, but you, it, the patriarchy is, is in, at the end of it. And okay. it's all about sort of, how can I make myself more proximal to the power structure? And so, yeah, uh, I do not think that women are inherently harsher on other women, but I do think that we judge each other. And I think we judge each other because we recognize that in a capitalist society, we're sort of in competition with one another for all kinds of resources and all kinds of attention. Uh, and it's important to recognize that. Speaking of being judgy. Um, Are you transitioning you can, into this editor question, Melissa? I am. I am transitioning into something as a writer mm-hmm. I'm interested in. You keep talking about how you are, you've always had a great editor. And your last book, Not That Bad, was actually a collection of essays from 30 other writers. Yes. And not on the cheeriest topic, on rape culture. Mm-hmm. But do, are you a good editor? Because yeah. I, I ask because... Let's she, just, was a, she was a bitchy writer. That's why. And she was giving her editor grief. That's why. That's why yeah. she's asking. Just come on, tell it. Come on. Okay. I, you know, as from the writing perspective, every word is your baby. Yeah. And you, what you've written is clearly genius. That's and then awesome. you have someone say to you, or in my case, clearly hilarious. And they say, mm, nah, 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 nah. So you've been on both ends of this. Mm-hmm. Are you a good editor? 
Or yes. do you, yes? I'm oh, she said, by the way, that as she says with absolute confidence, yes, because my word is law. Well, no, no, that's not it at all. Um, I'm not a dictator. I, I always tell my writers that, and, and also my students when I'm giving them feedback, what my feedback is just a suggestion. You can take it or not, but this is what I think will make your piece what it should be. Not because of what it, I would write, but like on its own terms, because of what you would write. And uh, I, yeah, I think every writer I've worked with would say that I'm a good editor to work with because I'm not tyrannical with the red pen. I actually How? don't use a red pen, I use a pencil. Is that, is the pencil red? No, pencil is oh. just regular pencil. How very sort of steel magnolia, you know, <laughs> iron fist and velvet glove. Yeah. Who's harder to work with? Your professional writers or your students? Oh, professional writers. I love my students. They're awesome. They're hilarious. Uh, I can you know. see that. I can see that. All that ego. Oh, yeah. yeah. Because like, All student, that ego, please. Students, the younger they are, the more fun I find them to be. I think they're just adorable. Uh, like, I love a 19-year-old who comes into my classroom and wants to tell me about abortion. Like, come on, please. <laughs> please tell me all about it, young man. Uh, <laughs> confidence is adorable. I like that they don't know what the rules are, so they're more willing to take risks with their work. Uh-huh. Whereas older writers, and I even find this a little bit with graduate students, they think they know everything, and they think that they can't be taught. And... That's just, that can be hard to work with. I've not encountered that with professional writers too much, but professional writers can be delicate flowers <laughs> at times. And yes, you know, we can be. Oh, you're being so politically correct. Yes, Look we can be. So PC. I would be. <laughs> no, I'm I, not being PC. I'm a Libra. So <laughs> I tend to be diplomatic. Uh, it's just, I've always been that way. I just think, you know, writers are... And I get it because you put so much of yourself most of the time into your work. Yeah, Sabrina. And (laughs) so when someone's like, this is terrible to fix it, you're like, oh my God, you're, you're, you're destroying me with your critique here. It it can be really hard to tolerate that kind of feedback. So excuse me. Are you listening, Sabrina? I am, but are you listening? Because you need not to wear your heart on your sleeve. I know, but so very often... <laughs> this is often, not personal. See, this is... You, you've walked into a, a, a debate, <laughs> whether you realize it or not. I very often, for like the Dear Diary, put things I put up on my Her website, blogs. on my blogs, I, my writing partner and I tend to get a little silly. And Sabrina looks at them and sends things back, like comments like, No. you know what and here's the thing Roxanne with Melissa I'm constantly trying to make sure that her voice is heard and what I mean by that is I know her and you know the people in our circle they know her but her fans are getting to know her it's like she's allowing them more and more behind the curtain and so I'm always really protective of her and how what lens she's going to be seen through you know People can, you know, be very harsh in how they they hear you, what their perceptions are. So that's where it comes from. It's really love, even though she doesn't hear it in the moment. Yeah. And I, we always default. I'm like, but it's funny. And she's like, but people don't necessarily have your sense of humor. Yeah, <laughs> you know? humor can be relative. Yes. Humor can be relative. Just um, like I've gone through this whole phase during quarantine, which actually did resonate with people of simply referring to my son who is 19 and the love of my life. 
um, when a lot of teenagers and came home from college and were uh, and high schoolers that were stuck at home, I simply started referring to him as it. Like it we, came out of its room today. Mm-hmm. It comes out to feed. And Sabrina's <laughs> also very protective of my son. She's like, I he, am. she's like, he is not it. I'm like, yes, it is. It stays in its room. It doesn't open the shades or the windows. And I tell him, like, he's allowed. He's allowed. Yeah, is an interesting age. They're yeah. sort of trying to figure out who they are going to be and who they were. And um, it, it's, it's a lot. Yeah. So this is a super open-ended question because anyone who who – wants to even get their head around everything you do from the pop-up magazines to compilations to books to teaching. What's next? Um, I am writing a movie right now Ooh. for a television network. And I am working on a couple TV shows and I'm working on several books. <laughs> I have a podcast. So uh, I'm a little busy. I'm working also on a new comic. I get That's around. wonderful. It Clear, is. Clearly, your voice is your gift. I think so. I, I definitely think so. Um, I, I feel very blessed. And I'm not particularly spiritual, but I do know that um, to be able to write and make a living from writing and to have people respect your point of view is definitely a blessing. And I don't take it for granted. Roxanne, it has been such a joy to talk to you. Everyone needs to check out your books and your podcasts. And remember, when you're Googling Roxanne, it only has one N. It does. (laughs) It only has one. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Melissa and Sabrina. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.